you have your Bibles, you please turn in them to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I can believe it can be found on page 976 in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And, and let me just encourage you to have your Bible open. It's the best way to follow a sermon. We preach expositionally here, verse by verse, exploring the truths of Scripture. And let's have the Word of Life open in front of us on a screen or pages or something as we study God's Word. And as you're turning there, I want you to know something. Um, you may or may not know that we actually live stream our worship services. And one of the main reasons that we do that is because we have a, a list of folks that we're praying for every week. And many of those folks that we're praying for are homebound. Uh, they're members of our congregation. And because of uh, it's just physically exhausting to them, they're not able to join us on Sunday mornings for worship services. So this is a way that that they participate with us, and we certainly greet them and, and welcome them and are so glad that they can join us this way. And so just know that in case you fall asleep, we have a, a camera that zooms in on you, and you're, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I do want you to know that one of our dear sisters in Christ, um, who is not with us this morning, has not been able to join us this year, Ann Lamons, is very close to meeting her Savior. Some elders and I got to spend some time with her yesterday and read the scriptures to her. Her and Aubrey have been married for over 60 years. They've walked faithfully with the Lord for a long time. As you may know, that's uh, Karen Henshaw's uh, mom and dad. And, and we love them, and we, we, we miss them being with us. But please just wrap them in your, in your prayers and go before the Father for them right now. Uh, during this time, uh, we will keep you updated on, on how we can pray for them and minister to them. But now, just pray for the family in these last hours. And uh, let me pray for them right now. Father, we do love our, our sister Anne. We do pray that you, the God of all comfort and peace, would be with her now. Father, we pray that she would not be scared. Lord, but that she would see you, Jesus, welcoming her into your kingdom with open arms, and that would fill her with everlasting joy. May that truth comfort Aubrey right now as he cares for his dear, dear wife. Be with Karen and her brothers and sisters during this time. Lord, love them. Help them to sense your mighty, comforting presence right now. Lord, help us as a church to love them and to reach out for them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If, uh, again, we are in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and verses 1 through 3 will be our focus of study. This is God's holy and inerrant word to us this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. So, Lord, may the meditations of our hearts and what we read and what we study and what I say, Lord, may it be pleasing in your sight. Teach us through your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm very much looking forward to preaching this passage to you, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, mainly because of the effect that it had on my life as a young man to show me the amazing grace of God. I, I would say that this passage is one of the two or three passages in the Bible that, that you must know. <laughs> and by that, I, I want you to, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to read on it, to to chew on it all, all the days of your life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's a, it's a benchmark passage of Christianity. It's a way in which we understand and know and love the gospel. It teaches us the good news of the gospel and the wonder of God's sovereign grace. It is a passage that is so rich and so transforming as the very word of God that it it can bring a dead soul to life because it is the word of God. It is also a passage that can bring joy and, and revitalization to a slumbering soul. It is a sweet word from God. It, it's the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's, it's, the, it's the gospel in its purest, cleanest form. I mean, here it is right for us, laid out for us in God's word. So I want you to know it. I want you to love it. I want you to memorize it. Maybe this morning you're here and you're like thinking, thank goodness I'm here. I've had a rough week. I felt very distanced from God. The, the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace have been just non-existent in my life for some time. Maybe that's the way you feel. And if that is the way you feel, let me encourage you to spend an entire week reading Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Just this passage. Just read it over and over. Pray through it. Ask God to teach you and to show you His amazing grace and worship. Read God's Word. Let, let this be a passage to nourish you. And so as we come to, to this passage, I'm going to spend three sermons through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And in these Three sermons we're going to observe in the first part, verses 1 through 3, who we are apart from Christ. And then in verses 4 through 6, we're going to look at who we are in Christ. And in the last verses, 8 through 10, we're going to see what God has done for us in Christ. And so that's our, that's our course over the next three weeks. But as we consider the first part of this passage, verses 1 through 3, we must consider a biblical theology of sin. There's a reason why the TV preachers don't preach on sin. It doesn't get a lot of viewers. 
And it's important, though. The Bible says that it's important. It's one of the first vows that our new members took today, that we have a biblical theology of sin. What does the Bible say about sin? Perhaps one of the greatest problems in in the church today, in our own hearts, and certainly in the world, is a poor theology of sin. And let's face it, we live in a world that treasures sin and sinful behavior. Sin is so prevalent, it's so much a, a part of our world and everything we consume and everything we do and everything we see that we've, we've become desensitized to it. We've become insensitive to the, to the hell and the horror of sin, the way it is celebrated in our world. Sin has, in fact, brought death and misery into the world. That is where the gospel starts. That is where the Bible begins, and that's where we must begin. Because the greatest trouble, the greatest trouble that an unbeliever has is no knowledge of the biblical doctrine of sin, no understanding of what it is. And yet for the believer... The greatest trouble we have is an inadequate understanding of the biblical teaching of sin. So we must have understanding. And we must think, why have we lost wonder and awe in the Christian life? Why do we sometimes forget God? Why do we sometimes forget the gospel and forget that all this matters? Why do we we sometimes walk through life apathetic and, and indifferent to spiritual things? Brothers and sisters, I think it's because we have stopped looking at the gospel and what all God has accomplished for us on the cross. We've lost wonder, or we lack wonder, in large part due to our failure to marvel at just how sinful we are and how wonderful God's love toward us who are sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that No man will ever have a true conception of the biblical teaching with regard to redemption if he is not clear about the biblical doctrine of sin. In other words, the good doctor is saying, our salvation will not be precious to us if we do not understand the sinful condition from which we have been rescued. Your salvation will not be precious to you. It will not cause you to awe and to wander if you do not understand the sinful condition from which you have been rescued. And so I read verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, and I told you we're just going to focus on verses 1 through 3, and that's where we have to start. I can't get to verses 4 through 6 about the grace and the love of God. We cannot get there before we understand first that we are dead in our sin. To understand grace, to know God's love, to see the great power of God in our our salvation. We must understand the biblical doctrine of sin. And so having a biblical theology of sin is paramount to, to knowing and experiencing the sovereign grace of God. We must understand who we are apart from God. And therefore, Ephesians 1 through 3 Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, will give us a biblical theology of sin. 
It will teach us first that we are dead in our sin. Secondly, it will teach us that we are in bondage to our sin. And third, it will teach us that we are doomed in our sin. We're dead in our sin. We're in bondage to sin. We're doomed in our sin. So the first is we are dead in our sin. Look at verse 1. You know, it's important to remember that Ephesians was a letter. It's probably first on a scroll. There were no verse numbers, chapter numbers, any of those type things. So Paul immediately gets right into it and says, you Ephesians, you Christians, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I heard someone once say, and I don't know who it was, I would give them credit. But they said that Jesus is not trying to give you a better life. He wants to bring you back to life. Jesus is not trying to give you your best life now. He's trying to give you life. This accurately sums up our desperate condition. The clear teaching of Scripture, of all of the Bible, is that we are dead. You're dead. This is a spiritual death, not a physical one. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we saw the awful fall of man into sin when God gave Adam and Eve a clear command to obey that would give them life and joy everlasting. But after their disobedience, the whole world plunged into sin and spiritual death came to all of mankind. Because in Adam, as his descendants, we are all dead. Spiritual death marks us all. We all have a sinful nature. We all have what the theologians call original sin. It lies within all of us. We are born into this world dead, lifeless, soulless, apart from a relationship with God. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, the Greek word for dead is nekros. That just sounds like an awful word, doesn't it? Nekros. Dead. It means dead. It means a, a corpse, a dead body. And this is an apt description of who we are apart from Christ. We are corpse. We're a walking corpse. We're dead. There's, there's no spiritual heartbeat in us. There's no, there's no spark of goodness that we just need to tap into and find. There, there's no spark of life in a dead person. We are dead. You and I are dead apart from the work of God's mighty power to rescue us from death and to bring us into an everlasting life. Does that scare you? Does that frighten you? Does this truth make you confused or angry or feeling hopeless? Because I know the first time I heard it, I didn't. I did not like it. Don't you dare tell me I'm not good and that I'm dead. That is where the Bible starts. This is the word God has for us. This is what Apostle... Paul wants his readers to know that 
who we are a truly apart who we are truly apart from the saving work of Christ we are dead we are dead in our sins we are dead in our trespasses and sins verse 1 says this is supposed to be an in Christ that we'll look at later instead of being in Christ apart from him we are dead in trespasses and sins these are these are two words that the bible uses to kind of emphasize the, a point these are not two different words that the apostle has given us to describe our simple condition. He's trying to stress a point here. We're dead in our trespasses. To trespass means to, to go across some boundary, to enter into an area you're not supposed to, or, or transgression. It's willfully disobeying the laws and the commands of God. And then sin, the way that the Bible describes sin is missing the mark. God's standard is absolute perfection and holiness, and we totally miss that mark. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God. We are dead in our sins. This teaching is what the Reformers called total depravity. Total depravity. John Calvin taught this doctrine in his famous tulip. And this is the place that we start to understand God's sovereign grace, his love, is to understand our depravity, that we are dead in our sin. Total depravity teaches us that we are, we are spiritually and morally bankrupt. There is no goodness inside of us that we have to just tap into. We are, we are corrupt in our words, in our thoughts, in our minds, in our deeds, and in our will. Our will is dead. It is sinful. It is fallen. We cannot choose righteousness, not because we don't want to, it's because we're unable to. We are dead. We need something outside of ourselves to rescue us. My friend Ligon Duncan says, it's not that the Apostle Paul is saying that we are in God's spiritual doghouse. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, you're in the morgue. You're dead. Apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Lifeless. Hopeless. Do you believe this teaching? We must start here if we're going to know and understand the sovereign love and grace of God in our salvation. We are dead in our sins. Secondly, the biblical theology of sin teaches us that we are in bondage to sin. Look in verse 2. You're dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons, disobedience. Not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, but we are in bondage to these forces of evil that are, that are beyond us, that are outside of us, and that is even in us. What is it that influences us and seeks to control us and keep us dead in our sin? What are these forces? What are these influences? There's three that the apostle mentions here. There's three of these forces, these influences that we must be 
intimately familiar with, that we must know that this is what the Scriptures teach and understand what their power is so that we can know that the grace of God has rescued us from these powerful foes. What are they? It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three forces drawing us in further into our sin. The world. Paul's not talking about the earth. He's not talking about the rock and the dirt and the sky and the water and the circle thing that floats in the Milky Way galaxy. (laughs) He's talking about a sinful way of understanding life. It's, It's a mindset of the world, and it's apart from God. It doesn't follow God in his world. The world is a is a system of belief that is apart from God, that's hostile to God. The world follows its own destructive system. It wants to pull you away from God. That is why several of the apostles says, do not love the world, because it wants to bring you into its own system of thought and belief and draw you away from God. We must beware of the forces of the world. And then there's the flesh. We must beware of the flesh. Paul says, we also once lived among the passions of our flesh. The flesh is not talking about our skin here. This is the Bible's way of talking about our own sinful hearts. Living in the flesh. Living according to our own desires. And and this is what the, the scriptures teach about our hearts. Our hearts are desperately wicked and beyond cure. There is enough sin right here to doom the entire world. And with you as well. Brothers and sisters, we must realize that our natural state is is sinful. Paul says in Romans 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We must beware of our own sinful hearts. And then there's the devil. The devil, Paul calls him here the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is a powerful foe. The devil is a great liar. He is a a force. He's an energy that seeks to lure us away from Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must realize that he's at work in this world. We must realize that he is doing everything he possibly can to get us to believe the lies. That God does not love us, that he does not care for us, that he's not concerned for our happiness. We must be watchful and aware of his schemes and his his temptations to draw us away. I know you felt this before. Somebody maybe you've been friends with for decades and all of a sudden you start to think, maybe they're lying to me. Maybe they're out to get me. And this person that serves you and loved you forever, where did those lies come from? How are we to think about this ancient foe, the devil? We don't talk about him much in Presbyterian churches, do we? C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. 
One is to believe in their existence. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In other words, Lewis is warning us that we can make too much or too little of Satan. But we must realize that he would love for us to remain dead in our sins and apart from God. It is this bondage to these spiritual foes, these spiritual forces. And Paul describes this as we are so dead in them, we're dead men walking, we're Walking in them, we're following them, we're living in them, we're carrying them. We are trapped in our sin. It's a desperate place that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 leaves us in. What do we do? What can we do? John Piper says that all of the bondage that we have to sin is answered by the sovereign grace of God. And we're going to study that more over the coming weeks, how God's sovereign grace answers this bondage. We must have knowledge, though, of this bondage and know what it means to be apart from God's grace. A, a theology of sin is important to know so that we may know what a desperate and fallen condition that we're in apart from Christ. Our depravity, our bondage to sin, it's real. And, and it's, it's real for the child who has grown up in the Christian home or for the person who was literally pulled out of a life of darkness and overt evil. If you were saved at, at two or saved at 42, you were rescued from the power of darkness and death. Whether you remembered it or not, God has saved us and rescued us from a bondage that, from, of sin that we could not rescue ourselves from. And so if you were a drug dealer and the worst sinner imaginable, you could praise God and tell of his wonderful grace. But if you were saved at two years old, you can say, I was rescued as well from a life of sin and death. And bondage to sin. And last we see that we're doomed in our sin. We're doomed in our sin. A fellow pastor friend of mine said his father-in-law was a man of few words. But when he would begin to talk to his father-in-law about the state of our culture and the fallen world that we lived in, his father-in-law would just say, we're all doomed. could tell they had a really intimate bond. Um, we are, we're doomed. In verse 3, look at verse 3. We are given a name and a designation that is frightening. We are called children of wrath. I mean, that sounds like a death metal satanic band or something, doesn't it? I mean, that's awful. But Paul says, this is who we are. This is who you were. This is your nature. We are objects of God's wrath. What does it mean to be a child of wrath? 
In Romans 1, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is against sin. And we must understand that God's wrath is wholly different from man's anger. Because maybe you had an abusive father or you knew of one and you just think that that's what God's wrath must be like. It's just a dad flying off the handle, spanking his child in public or something like that. God's wrath is not like man's anger. God's wrath is a manifestation of his holiness, of his justice, and even of his goodness. One scholar states, God's wrath is his settled stance against sin. The response demanded when holiness encounters sin and evil. It is not idle, nor does it betray a loss of control. It conveys strong indignation directed at wrongdoing with focus on retribution. That is God's wrath. We are condemned under the wrath of God because of our sin. We are doomed. We do not like this truth. I don't really enjoy preaching it to you. Because we all want to believe that mankind is basically good, right? There's got to be enough goodness in this world to rescue us, right? But the Bible does not leave us with that option. It says you are dead. We are in bondage. We are doomed. Doomed to die an eternal death in our sin. And that's really bad news. And again, it's not fun for me to preach, but it's, it's the truth. It's the reality. So why all this talk about sin? Maybe some of you are in church today and you haven't been here in a long time and you're saying, that is exactly why I stopped going to church. All the preacher does is talk about sin. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. If you look there on the back of your back panel of your worship folder, you'll see the first membership question, the first vow of membership. We asked these folks up here, and they said yes. <laughs> Do you acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner, deserving the wrath of God and without hope, save in His sovereign grace and mercy? That doesn't seem like a nice place to start. But why would they say yes to that? Was I trying to trick them? No. We must start there. We, we must make sure we have a biblical theology of sin because that's where the Bible teaches us we must start so that we can know the love and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If you want to know the greatness of God's love and of His sovereign grace, you have got to realize the depth of your sin. If you want to know, we've got to know Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 before we can get to verses 4 through 6. We have to understand our deadness, our bondage, our doom before we can know the sovereign grace of God that sets us free in Christ. And if you don't realize these things, if you don't know them, if you don't see your sin and hate it, 
then I have to inform you, then you're not a Christian. You're not. But if you're realizing for the first time that maybe you see the depth and the awfulness of your sin, let me encourage you, be glad. God is working in you. Understanding the depth and the depravity of your sin is spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit is working in you. And if that is what you realize this morning, repent. Repent, turn away from your sin, turn away from yourself. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can save you from your sin. He can do it. He has done it. If you're here this morning and you do hate your sin, and if you long to be away from the tyranny of sin, and you see no hope except in Jesus Christ alone, then brother and sister, praise God. Because you are one of his elect, you are one of his children. God has been gracious to work in your heart and and show you the life and joy that you can have in forgiveness of your sins. We have to know the bad news before we can love the good news. We are in a desperate condition. We are dead in our sins, but God has done what we could not do for ourselves. He saved us. He sent his son to bear the wrath that we deserve, to die the death that we deserve. He rose from the dead, and by his resurrection, we are united to him, and he will raise us up also. He will give life. He will go into the morgue. of our dead spiritual lives, and he will call us out and raise us up. And by the way, he did that several times. It is only when we see these things, it is only when we know these things and study these things, that we will be able to praise God. In a moment, we're about to sing a hymn that's fairly new to us. And we're going to sing it a lot. It's called, All I Have is Christ. Look there, tear, open your bulletin, look at this last hymn of response. All we have is Christ. I once was lost in darkness light, night. Second stanza, but as I ran my hell-bound race, that is where we are. Dead in our sins. What do we do? All we have is Christ. Oh, Father, look upon our helpless state and lead us to the cross. Let's pray. Father, dead men have no life. Dead men have no hope. Dead men have no future. Dead men have no joy. That is who we are. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to talk about it. And we certainly don't want to tell others. But that is why Jesus came. He came to bring hope and life 
to a fallen world, and he shouted and proclaimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that everyone who believes in him has crossed over from death to life, has been resurrected. So Lord, we thank you that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Though we fall short of your glory, Christ has redeemed us and given us eternal life. Lord, help us to remember the bad news. Help us to remember where we have come from so that we may have joy in what we are now in Christ. Hallelujah. All we have is you, Lord Jesus. Help us to sing it like we mean it. In your name we pray. Amen.